and uh, they would were passed around from church to church, and uh, the church would gather, and the letters of Peter and the letters of Paul and the scriptures would be opened, and quite often these uh, they're encyclical letters. They would go from church to church and be copied, and they would be they'd be read in their entirety uh, before the congregation. Now, I'm not going to read the letter of Peter, First and Second Peter, in its entirety this morning, but I thought it would be good because we've what we've done is we've sort of drilled into particular sections of First and Second Peter in order, and we've looked at it in depth, and um, and that's good. The the 13 weeks that we spent on it. But this morning what I want to do is I want to step back and just look at the broad picture of these letters and the broad picture of Peter's message so that the whole message falls on us all at one time, the way that it would if you just read through it as a congregation and they sort of got the whole heart and the whole message of Peter all at once. And and to sort of set that up and to remember if we go back, um, you have a situation where Peter is is running out of his life. Um, so you can think of these letters almost as last words. And, and so you could think of them as, as the things that Peter wants to get across. He's in prison in Rome at this time. He and Paul are sidelined. He can't go to the church. He cannot go and preach and visit the way that he and Paul were accustomed to. He's imprisoned under Nero. Uh, he's got a pretty good idea that his life is just about over. And so these are his last two letters. These are his final words. This is his last chance to get across what he wants to the church uh, that he helped establish and that he wants to leave these faithful Christians with as they go on to beyond the age of the apostles. And uh, so he's been running this Christian race of his own faith for 30 or 40 years, and uh, he's facing death. And he has this final message that he wants to get across. And we know this because he writes, actually, in his letter here. He says, I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. And as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at any time to recall these things. So this is the last thing that Peter has to say. This is like, this is like the coach before the big game, the last thing you can tell your team. It's, it's, the last, it's the last thing you can pass on to your kids. It's the last letter you're going to write to your friends. And this is what Peter writes. And so we're going to look at, at, at his letter in that context. And it's a gift, I think. It's a gift of assurance to the church. That's what he wanted to give them. And an and insurance and a, and a confirmation that they will carry on and that they're not going to be torn apart by false teaching, that the church isn't going to drift into error, but that they will reach their goal just as he is reaching his goal. And, and he's on the sidelines and, and he's not free to travel and encourage, but he's going to give them this speech, so to speak, in writing. And so there's this, this tone that sort of trembles underneath everything that Peter is writing, that you can do it, you have the salvation, you have the Holy Spirit, you have the knowledge, you have the scriptures, you have the promises, you're going to make it, you're going you're to be victorious. And so in these final pages of Peter's teaching are the summary of his life work with the church and his desire for Christian believers. And so we're going to take the overview and just briefly go through seven things. I think there are seven things that I think Peter wants us to hear in his last letters. Seven things he wants us as a church here today to be assured of, to spur us on, so that we run our race without wavering. And so we'll look at those seven assurances today. Let me just pray. Father God, as we open up your word, I just pray that this, this context, this tone, uh, this reality of, of how Peter is putting 
his pen on the paper 2,000 years ago and how he is wanting to spur his church on. And Father, there's, there's way more than seven assurances here, but we're just going to look at these seven. These seven certainties, these seven things that Peter knows, and Peter knows that his Christian friends know that they won't waver from this knowledge, that they won't waver from the certainty of what they know and what they're assured of. So Father, just bless us as we look into your word. Bless us as we make these assurances and these certainties ours so that they're our certainties and they're our assurances and they cause us to run faithfully and not waver and not doubt and to act rightly in all circumstances. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first one of these seven assurances, and as I say, I will go through them rather quickly, um, is that first of all, that we're assured of our salvation. He starts off, he says in 1 Peter 1.3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so as Peter begins to write to his brothers and sisters, his very first assurance to them is that they are born again, that it's Christ that caused us to be born again, that they are born in, their hope is alive. When something is born, it's alive, and they are born again from a dead history, a dead life to a living hope. And just as the same way as Jesus was brought to life, out of the tomb, to life, and our hope is in him, and and his resurrection from the dead by the power of God is a guarantee of this promise that we are also brought to life and born again. And that's the simple message of the Bible, right? I could just end it right there. That's the message of hope that we have. There is a hope, the hope is real, and it rests on this unshakable fact, which we all know from John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, And whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That's it. That's the hope that Peter starts out, and that's the assurance that he starts out giving his people. You were caused by God to be born again to a living hope because the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power of God that has resurrected you and caused you to be born again. And so because God's plan worked from the before the foundation of the world, he had this plan to redeem us. And because it worked, then Peter can say that we are, our, our future is certain. That, that as we live out our lives here, that there's an assurance that comes from the power of God working in our lives. And he says it later on in, in 2 Peter 1, 5 to 8. He says then of this power that's the living hope in us, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our lord jesus christ in other words he says as your as you grow in these qualities as you're born again the baby's born and then what happens with babies they grow right peter says it's the same thing you're born again and then as you're born again as you grow in these qualities of virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and love and as you're growing in those qualities you can be certain that your salvation is not unfruitful You're certain that the power of God is working and that your reward is coming. So Peter starts out by saying, just be certain, be assured that you are born again. The second assurance that he gives us is of our destination. We're born again, but then 
Peter goes on to say, we're born to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so Peter says, secondly, he wants his church, he wants his believers to be assured of an inheritance, that they are going to receive the reward that they were saved to. And that inheritance is imperishable and it's undefiled and it's unfading because it isn't here. It's not this stuff that's in on earth. You know, it's not like my boat that was three feet underwater beside my dock two weeks ago. You know, it's not things that moth and rust destroy. It's not, you know, the shingles coming off your house and having to redo the siding and, uh, you know, mark was talking about how they've lived in their house now what 30 years 25 years and you've pretty much replaced the entire thing right in the last 25 years that's what things on earth are like but peter says no you you have a reward and an inheritance that is unperishable and unfading because it's kept in heaven and then the double assurance that he gives them is not only do you have that inheritance but you are actually going to get there why are you going to get there this is so important it's kept in heaven for you who by god's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time so not only is your inheritance there god guarantees you're going to get there because he's going to guard your faith through this life so that you get there to that inheritance in heaven and so it is double guaranteed it's double assured and jesus said it this way when he was saying the same thing to his disciples he said it this way in john 10 he said i give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand that's what peter that's what jesus was saying that's what peter's saying you are born again and you cannot lose it you are going to be guarded to the end because nobody can snatch you out of the father's hand peter says there's a guarantee of your salvation a guarantee of your inheritance and that guarantee is not bound up in who you are it is not bound up in your ability to perform some way it is not bound up in how hard you believe or how much you grit your teeth and be a moral person the assurance that we have is because of the sacrifice of jesus the certainty of our salvation and the certainty of our inheritance is because it was purchased by something far more valuable than us and something far more valuable than our ability to do good. He says, Peter says in 118, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so our assurance is absolutely guaranteed. Why is it guaranteed? Because the price that was paid for our salvation and our inheritance in heaven was the blood of Jesus Christ. And if it's been paid for by the blood of Jesus, you can absolutely guarantee God's going to deliver it because it was his own son. And then Peter goes on to say, not only are you assured of your salvation and assured of your inheritance and that you're going to reach it, he says that we are assured as Christians of our identity in Christ. Because of our salvation and inheritance and because of the price that Jesus paid for us, Peter goes on to say, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
And so Peter says to his Christian brothers and sisters, his friends in his last letter here, that he wants to get across to them this assurance. He says, you can be guaranteed of your identity in Christ. You are assured of your identity. You have no doubt about your new identity in Christ. And we get this new identity on about a hundred different levels. We're citizens in a new holy nation. And we are no longer belong to the people who were scoffing and who were mocking. We're no longer the rebellious people who rejected God. We're no longer the people who were condemned by our sin. We're no longer the victim of other sins. We're not... If you want to take it to another level, we're no longer identified by being stupid or ugly or fat or dumb or whatever it was that people called us in school. That's not our identity anymore. We're not enslaved to our past. Our identity is removed from the world and put in Jesus Christ and it's placed in heaven. And so we don't stop being who we are. I'm not saying we lose our identity. We still are who we are, but we, and we, we still live in our flesh and we still struggle with it, but our identity is no longer bound up in our flesh. Peter says you can be assured that God doesn't see you that way anymore. That is not who you are. You are now a child of God. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. Go and proclaim the excellencies of your king. And so this assurance in our identity leads very importantly to our assurance in our suffering. Peter says that we have a certainty, we have an assurance in our suffering, that God gives us the power to act rightly no matter what circumstances befall his people. He says in 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And Peter went through, if you remember a couple of sermons there that we dealt with suffering, and Peter went through examples of Christian suffering in various spheres of our life. And he said, you might be suffering. I mean, they were living with Nero, okay? Psycho empire of the known world who was burning Christians as torches in his garden and created the circus to throw them to the lions, okay? This is who they were living with. And and Peter says, you can have a bad, oppressive government, okay? You can have nasty laws. They can outlaw prayer in school. They can bring in a new sex ed program, okay? You can have a government that is oppressive to the Christian faith and you can still act rightly And you can still be above reproach as Christians and you can bear up under that suffering well. And he gave the sphere of government. He says, bad government, you can still behave rightly as Christians even under bad government. What we have today is nothing like Nero. Nobody is lighting the gardens of Parliament Hill as human torches yet in Canada. But he gives that sphere of government. But then he says, you might have bad bosses. He says, slaves or servants. You might have an unjust boss. You might have unfair work conditions. You might not be getting your due. But he says, you can humble yourself and you can live rightly and you can act rightly even in the sphere of work where you are being persecuted. He says, you might even have a bad marriage. And he says, husbands and wives, you can honor one another as Christians even in a bad marriage that you have this assurance that your suffering is not in vain. That your suffering, Peter's assurance, if you remember those, those sermons, was that our suffering is not pointless. Because that's where despair comes from, right? You go through sickness, or you go through suffering, or you go through whatever, and you don't know what the point of life is. You don't know why you're doing it. And it all becomes despair, because why would I go through all this pain? Why would I go through this heartache? Why would I go through this persecution if there is no point to it? 
But Peter's whole assurance is that there is a point to your testing, that it comes upon you as a test, and that you can rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, because he suffered too, that you may rejoice also and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's revealed in how we suffer as Christians. And so Peter's assurance is that our suffering isn't pointless, that our suffering is accomplishing something. It's accomplishing our sanctification, and it's accomplishing our glorification. It's not pointless because our suffering isn't only about us, but it is about our response to it and what that response to suffering is accomplishing in the people around us. Peter, and I wish I could go into it again, but go back and listen to the podcast. But Peter just, there's so many things that our suffering is doing that is redeeming it, that God is using our suffering to accomplish purposes. And so we can be assured in our suffering. He says, he goes on later on, he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. And so Peter says, the suffering is going to pass and is going to result in something far beyond what you can imagine. So be certain, be assured in your suffering. Notice he doesn't say, be assured that you won't suffer. He's not saying, be assured that you won't suffer. He's being, he says, be assured in your suffering. Fifthly, Peter wants these Christians, his brothers and sisters in this, in this new, you know, this new church thing that's going on, this body of believers in this, in this Jesus Christ guy, he wants them to know that they are assured of their knowledge. And he says in his second letter, Peter wants to reground all of these assurances on the certainty of what believers can know. And Peter already knows that the wolves are entering the church, right? He already knows that there are people infiltrating the church with false teaching and they're already starting to spread lies. And he already knows that people are starting to twist the words that Jesus spoke and they're starting to twist the scripture and discouragement has already begun. And so Peter writes in his second letter a celebration of the certainty of what believers know. He says in Second Peter 1, He says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And he goes on to say, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And so Peter's emphasizing the fact that these believers are established through the knowledge of God and that they have the truth. You know and you have the truth. He says, when he's talking about the scriptures and about the testimony of the gospel, he says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him, Jesus, on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What's he talking about? He's saying you have the scripture. And you have the scripture confirmed because we were with Jesus. And we were with Jesus on the mountain when he appeared in glory and God spoke and he shone and, and we saw it all. And then he died and then he was, we saw the empty tomb and then we saw him and he spoke and talked to us and then we saw him go up to heaven. Peter says, we, we have it all. We've seen it and we've passed it on to you. And so you can be certain that what the prophets wrote was true, that you have the knowledge. Don't let anybody tell you that you don't. You have certainty in the scriptures. 
And you might be people who once scoffed like these other false teachers. You might have been a mocker or you might have been a scoffer or you might have doubted if there really was a creator and a judgment coming. But Peter confronts them with the reality of scripture that these people must remember at some point became a light in their dark hearts. Right? There was that point, you believers with me will remember, when the Bible didn't make any sense or you thought it was stupid or you thought it was just myths or fairy tales or whatever and you were in that camp and then there was that point when the gospel got through to you and you realized that the Bible was making more sense of the world than you could and the Bible was making more sense of your heart than you could and the light went on and it became a lamp that was shining in a dark place and the, the day dawned in your heart, and then you realize the Bible makes sense. Everything that it says is true. And Peter is just telling these believers, he's saying, don't doubt that. The scriptures are true. And you have the word of the prophets, and you have all that wisdom, and you have that light that's dawned, and we've confirmed it all. And so don't doubt what you know. Be assured in the scripture. You have the assurance of what you know in the scripture. That everything that God said would come about has come about. And every, all the wisdom and all the truth that we see now in the Bible that sheds so much light on ourselves and the world, it's all true. And so you can confirm that. You can be assured of that. You can trust what Scripture tells you. And you can trust what you know in your heart when you read the Scriptures. Don't let the scoffers and the mockers darken the light of the Scriptures when, they tell, when the Scriptures tell you the truth about God and your sin, and the way of salvation. Everything that the scripture tells you about God and your heart and the way of salvation is true. And then Peter goes on and he assures his Christian friends suffering under Nero and infiltrated by false teachers and scoffers that God is not absent or that God is not unable to judge. He goes on to assure them that God is able and will judge rightly. He says in 2 Peter 2.9, he says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That's good news, isn't it? And to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And that's just. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And so Peter says that God knows how to judge rightly. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And he knows how to keep the ungodly under judgment as they should be and under punishment until the day of judgment. And so Peter wants to assure these Christians, again, who are living under Nero, who are living in a very difficult time, this would be a letter that would be very appropriate to the Middle East again today, right? Living under ISIL. And he he wants to assure these Christians that God is not slow, that God is just being patient. That God's desire is not to let the unrighteousness and the injustice and the evil to run free and not be punished. Its punishment is coming. The vengeance of God is coming. His judgment is coming. And he knows how to rescue the godly. And he knows how to punish. And he will do it in his time. He says in Second Peter 3.10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. That just means it's going to come quickly when we don't expect it. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works and all that are done in it will be exposed. And Peter says this to warn and to encourage. For Christians, it's an encouragement that God is not asleep. God is not idle. God is not distracted, but God is patient. God is warning and waiting for everyone who will come to him to come. But there there is no doubt These Christians should not doubt that God will judge. And when he judges, his judgment will be right. And his judgment will be just. 
more right and more just than ours. This is a good reason why we shouldn't judge and why we shouldn't be so quick to mete out punishment because we'll do it badly and God will do it right. And so he's telling these Christians that are suffering, when God comes to judge, he will judge and he will punish exactly as should be. The wicked will not escape and the saved will not be overlooked or miss out on their reward. Everything will be done perfectly by the God who is just. You can be assured of that, Peter says. And then seventh, he wants his people to be assured of the gospel promise. Peter leaves his friends with this assurance of the gospel promise of God. And that, what I mean by that is, is the good news that our salvation is near at hand and that our salvation is coming. He says in Second Peter 1.4, he says, He has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. That's his promise. That God has said, I have promised you that there is a way that you can be adopted into my family. And he says later on at the end of Second Peter, he says, but according to his promises, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's the gospel promise. That's the, that's the whole point. That we, that, we, that we sinned and we fell away from God and we rejected God and we rebel against God and we spurn God and we put everything in our life ahead of God. But he sent his son in order for us to realize who God is and to take on this promise of the salvation that's available to us through his son. And if we take that promise, if we take that gift, then the gospel promise is this. Okay, this is what we're waiting for. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right? You remember what what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. He says, we groan awaiting the redemption of our bodies. This This is the promise we're all waiting for. Right? Like, like, let's not kid ourselves. We, we put on a brave face here and we talk about how great it is to be Christians and we love God and God's so good to us and there's joy in our life. But this is not the end game here. Right? Thank the Lord that this is not the end game. There is a promise of a redemption that goes way beyond this world. New body, new heaven, new earth, no sin. Just righteousness for eternity. That's the gospel promise. And that's what we're really living for. And there's no shame in hoping in that. There's no shame in wanting to live for that. That is the promise of the gospel that we're hoping for. And so those, these are two very short letters that the Apostle Peter has just jam-packed with assurances. And there's way more than seven assurances. You can go back and read and reread First and Second Peter a hundred times and you will just keep finding for yourself in your own life many more assurances. So my question today is as we sort of step back and we look at the whole picture of what Peter is trying to get across from his heart to his people through these letters, how many of these assurances ring true with you? How many of these assurances are you standing firm in today in these sort of seven major areas that Peter says we can know as Christian? Are you standing firm in the assurance of your salvation? Are you standing firm in the insurance, the assurance of your inheritance? Are you standing firm in the assurance that you're going to make it to the end? Are you standing firm in the assurance in your suffering? Are you solid in your understanding that God is wise and he knows how to judge rightly? And that he is not making mistakes when he does things and doesn't do things in your life. But he can preserve the righteous for their reward and he can judge rightly at the right time. Are you firm in that? Are you standing firm in the gospel promise that there is a new heaven and a new earth coming? 
How are you standing in these assurances today? Because that's what Peter wants for his church. That's what Peter wants. He wants them to be assured of these things and be encouraged by them. And they're all extremely encouraging. But then as I was thinking about this, that's one question. But then as I was thinking about this, there was another way of looking at this review of the letters. And it's this way of looking at it. That Peter has held in these letters for us, in contrast, two kinds of lives. He has held for us in these letters, in contrast, two sorts of people which we can relate to today. We can either relate to one kind of person or to another kind of person. And the one sort of people that he is writing to is the sort of people that knows of their salvation because they heard the gospel and they asked for and received the forgiveness of God. And they are a people that are assured of God's power, will hold them to their destination, and that their inheritance in heaven is secure. And and this people that he's writing to, they know in their heart that they have a new identity in their relationship with Jesus, that their old identity is gone, and they don't have to live under that identity anymore. And they live in celebration and joy in the new identity that they have in Jesus. The old is gone and the new has come. And these people, the lives of these people, they experience suffering, of course, but they suffer very differently than others. They endure hostile laws and a hostile culture, and they tolerate unfair bosses, and they, and they get through difficult relationships and even hard marriages and all these things, and they do it with grace and above reproach and with joy because they know that their suffering is temporary, and they know that their suffering is accomplishing a greater purpose. And when these people read the Bible, they see that it confirms what they know to be true about their own hearts and about the fallen nature of the world and that our need and our need for God. And they see that the scriptures are full of wisdom and life and truth and they know and they trust that God is just and will judge rightly. And these people, they also know that God is love and God will save those who just ask and trust him. That's one kind of people that, that Peter's writing to. And he has contrasted and juxtaposed another sort of person in his letter as well that he's writing to, especially in his second letter. And this other sort of person that Peter knows will be listening to his letters read in his church, they are mockers and they are scoffers and they doubt God will ever return and judge their wrongdoing and they hide behind false teaching or they twist the truth of what the Bible says about sin and grace and forgiveness so that it satisfies their own idea about what they think the world should work like and they take advantage of the church and the kindness of Christians and they believe whatever benefits them the most that day or they simply don't believe at all. And they appear to be partying and living it up and getting wealthy and having it all on the outside and having it all together. But in the background, their lives are actually a mess. And their greed and their immoral relationships just get them deeper and deeper into trouble. They are like dogs that return to vomit, like a sow after cleaned returns to the mud. And they are ultimately unhappy and unsatisfied, but they just can't seem to escape the cycle of hurt in their life. And they just keep returning to bad habits and getting hurt again. That's the second kind of people that Peter juxtaposes in his letters, especially in the second letter. And so you have to decide which of those two kinds of people you relate to. Which of those two kinds of people does your heart resonate with today? What one are you? What one do you recognize in yourself? And the good news, this is the great news, is that the hope for both of those kinds of people is exactly the same. The hope that Christians have 
is our hope in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the saving power of his sacrifice to set us free from our sin and set us free from our path and give us a new identity. And the hope for those mockers and scoffers and people who seem to have it all together and are living large, but really it's all fallen apart inside, their hope is exactly the same. Their hope is in Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, that his sacrifice was for them if they will simply reach out and accept it. The hope is identical for both. If you would just lay down your sword, you just lay down your rebellion, stop taking joy in wrong and start taking joy in God's good plan for your life. If you're in that second group of mockers and scoffers and doubters, The hope that you have in Jesus Christ is no further away from you than it is for anyone else here this morning. You just have to say, God's smarter than me. The Bible's wiser. Jesus did it. I'm done trying. I want to try something new. Repent and be saved. Confess your error. End your rebellion. Turn to God. God is love, and he is able and will save you by the love he has shown already in his son Jesus. And if that sounds like what you want to do, you can do it right now as we pray. Let's pray. Father God, you've given way more than seven assurances in these letters from Peter. As he is sitting in prison, I just, I just picture it, Lord. I just picture him sitting in prison. Maybe Paul's there beside him or in a cell nearby. They're probably in the same, there at the same time. And he's writing And he's scratching out on these pieces of paper his last words to a church that he desperately wants to be assured, that he wants to be encouraged, that their salvation is guaranteed, that that they are born again, that what is bought with the blood of Christ will never be revoked. And Father, that their suffering is not in vain, that even though they are tested and tried, it is accomplishing sanctification in their life. It is accomplishing glory to you. It is a witness to the world. Their suffering is accomplishing a thousand things that they can't even imagine. And in the end is glory for them. Father, he wants them to be assured that you are not distracted or asleep or not there, but you will judge rightly. You will rescue them and you will punish the wicked as you justly should. And Father, he wants them to know that the gospel promise is true. There's a new heaven, a new earth, a new body, a new future. And Lord, it is beyond our comprehension. Even as we say it, we think that sounds weird, but it's there for us by your promise. And so Father, I just pray this morning that we would be assured by the things that Peter wanted his church to be assured by. And Father, I pray that as we read First and Second Peter again, maybe that we would know exactly who we identify with. Are we receiving the letter as the people who are assured by these things? Or are we receiving the letter as the mocker and the scoffer who doesn't believe any of it and thinks that we'll get by on our own and it doesn't matter anyway? Father, our hearts are for those people this morning. By your Holy Spirit, they would recognize uh, that you love them, that your judgment is coming, but that you are patient, that you are waiting for them to turn, to decide that that the way they're living their life isn't working and that they want to live it for you. And so, Father, we pray that they would make that choice even today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.